Hey everybody, welcome to episode 37 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Before we get into today's show, I just want to make a quick announcement about what you can expect from the next couple of months from us here at the show. Erica and I will be traveling across the U.S. throughout the months of October and November. I will be recording new podcast episodes, updating the four episodes in October and November, and shooting a short video series about our travels for a company called Tilt, T-Y-L-T. I will have more details about all of that how you could follow along on Instagram, watch the videos online, and all of those things if you're interested. I'll have more of that information on the next episode, the episode that comes out on October 1st. On today's show, we have Alan Gigax. He is a mailman in the Vegas area, but not only does he deliver mail throughout all sorts of weather conditions, mostly intense heat, but he also is the leader of one of the larger hiking meetup groups in the West, Vegas Hikers Meetup, and he is a writer for Desert Companion Magazine and an officiator for outdoor-themed weddings. So if you'd like to get married in the outdoors somewhere in the Western U.S., you want to talk to Alan Gigax. He and I got together in Calico Hills over in Red Rock, just outside of Vegas, on April Fool's Day. My apologies that it took so many months for this episode to come out, Alan. But we got together on April Fool's Day, huddled up in some rocks over there in Calico Hills, and had this discussion. So let's go hear about the adventures of Alan Gigax and one messed up first backpacking experience. My name's Alan Gigax. I am an outdoors writer for Desert Companion Magazine. It's the magazine of our local national public radio affiliate. I also run a meetup group called Vegas Hikers. We are about 12,000 members strong as of this recording. We've had over 5,000 events. Just in this uh, last month, which was March of 2016, we had close to 80 events on the calendar. And then by day, I'm a mailman. Come rain. Or snow, or how's it go? Yeah. Come rain, snow, sleet, dark of night, none shall tear the carrier from his appointed rounds. So something like that. I probably should learn that. I've been uh, in about 10 years. You mean you don't have to recite it every morning? Everyone doesn't get together and hold their right hand over no, their, their heart and fact, recite that? No, as a matter of fact, early on in my career, my supervisor made sure that I knew that we would not be expected to deliver under certain conditions and that I don't have to worry about that. The biggest thing in Vegas is the oppressive heat during the summer. Most of the winter, it's gorgeous here. So give us the inside scoop. What does it take for the mail not to be delivered? That's a good question. Luckily, I've never encountered a day like that here in Vegas. But, you know, something as simple as a power outage at your local post office would probably stop the mail from going up. Or it was certainly a power outage at the plant. If there's a tornado or a hurricane, you know, we won't deliver that. Any lightning definitely keeps us keeps us in, at least temporarily. What about a gigantic meteor strike or alien invasion? No, Those we actually have mean? contingency plans for alien invasion. I learned about that in the first few days, uh, probably because of our proximity to Area 51. Are, are, and, is that sincere? Are they really 
No, no. <laughs> because not. because there are what and and insurance or what acts of God. Oh yeah, and other things yeah. of that nature. So sometimes force majeure. Yeah, sometimes yeah. there are these weird. But the biggest problem we run into here has got to be the heat. You know, in the summer our trucks don't have air conditioning in them, and so in the summer when it's 110, 115, it'll stay 140 inside the truck. It's pretty brutal. I go through a lot of ice water during those days. You should ask them to install an air conditioner. You know, I have asked. In fact, we had these Ford Windstars, which are pieces of crap, by the way. And the thanks, there goes my Ford sponsorship. Oh no, the new Fords are wonderful. (laughs) I would boy love those. But uh, the post office actually paid to have the air conditioners removed from the Windstars before we took them in service. And I have been in a couple of mail trucks that have had air conditioning, and I kind of understand why, because you don't want to get out. Oh, is that the idea if the, the truck is too comfortable that you're going to hang out That's not the idea. The I'm sure it has to do with fuel and maintenance costs. But for me personally, yeah, I would always stay in the truck an extra 5, 10 seconds, minutes before I would get out into the oppressive heat again. So we're hanging out in an area, what did you call this? Slab Rift. The area we are oh, right the now? attic. The attic. The Just attic. the attic. For some reason, I keep wanting to call it Granny's Attic, but I don't want to change your names. The Attic. Tell us about this area and why you brought us here this morning. Well, I brought you here because it's a fun little scramble to get up here. It's uh, early in the morning during Red Rock Rendezvous, and so uh, you have climbs to get to, and we kind of want to avoid the crowds. So this is a fun little spot that very few people know about. Hikers and rock climbers walk right by it without even realizing it's here. And it's where this huge monolith has broken off from the mountainside and created this rift that you can hike through and that is slab rift itself and then where the the slab broke off and fell against the hillside next to it that created this uh this triangle shaped room essentially which we call mom's house and we're up in an upper room of mom's house that i call the attic yeah so we're chilling in this little like you said triangular shaped cubby area with the wind wailing outside and mina trying to be really quiet because she wants to watch us do a podcast but not be on the podcast say hey mina hey mina all right so that's enough about mina nobody cares about mina yeah we're here to talk about alan gigax right yeah that's perfect so that's almost like gygax yeah. Have you gotten that your Allegedly, whole life? Allegedly, there is some relation somewhere yes, way back. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Gary Gygax is one of the co-creators of Dungeons & Dragons. Correct. So that's why Gygax is a famous name. Yeah. But you're Gygax, yes. which is different. Yeah. Allegedly, when the family came to America, it was Gago. It was French. And they dropped the U in Gago, and it turned into Gygax. Oh, interesting. So if you had somehow ended up in Louisiana, where I grew up, I would have stayed you'd Gago. still be Gago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good call. So now you are one of the organizers for this meetup group. Yeah. But you clearly were not born as a member of that meetup group. Did you come to the outdoors as a kid, or is this something you found later in life? It was probably as about an 11 or 12-year-old when I first came to Las Vegas. My parents actually took me out here to Red Rock, and we would park uh, just over the hill from where we are now at uh, the Calico One parking lot. And my parents had just let me go and start climbing on the rocks. And they said, as long as you can see us in the parking lot, you can climb over whatever you want. And that really started my love of scrambling. And then there was a seminal moment at Valley of Fire, which is a beautiful state park just north of here, where I went climbing with my dad or scrambling with my dad. And we wound up on a peak of one of the hills out there. And that was the first time I had ever done anything like that. 
and I really bonded with my dad and I kind of fell in love with the outdoors at that point and I've been scrambling ever since and hiking ever since. Were you yeah. living in Vegas then, We had just Nevada? moved to Vegas. Uh, in fact, those experiences may have actually been before we moved to Vegas. My parents would come up here a lot. We lived in San Diego and then in Palmdale, California and they would come up for vacation. From time to time, we would go and see the stuff out here. And then when we moved here, I started coming out here with my friends and that's where everything really got cemented for me. So there's a secret, because you live in Vegas now, right? Yes. Correct? So there's a secret about Vegas. People think, when they think of Vegas, of course, they think of casinos and strippers and whatever else people think of. Yeah. <laughs> and I have legitimately had people ask me what hotel I live in. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, people think of nothing but adult playground, adult amusement park. But the secret kind of with Vegas and Nevada in general is that there's this amazing outdoor community surrounding Vegas. Yeah, the outdoors community is huge here. There are so many ways to be active in the outdoors. All winter long, the entire area is accessible, it's comfortable, it's great for hiking. There are great trails and rocks at Lake Mead, at Valley of Fire, at Red Rock, and points beyond. And it's all hikeable all winter long. And well into spring and fall as well. It's only in the hottest parts of the year, June, July, August, that we have to retreat up to Mount Charleston, which, again, is a beautiful, accessible spot that allows for hiking all year round. It really lets the uh, outdoors community thrive because whatever it is that you're into, whether it's rock climbing, water skiing, snowshoeing, mountain biking, you name it, it can be done right on the edge of town. Yeah, there's also some great caving out here as well, from what I understand. Absolutely. In fact, right across from the entrance to Red Rock National Conservation Area is a cave that is locally called Cowboy Cave, where is the place where my wife and I met on a meetup event. Do you want to tell that romantic story? <laughs> sure, sure. So back in the early days of meetup, you used to be able to RSVP as a maybe. And there was a very attractive young woman who had signed up as a maybe for an event that I was doing at Cowboy Cave and simultaneously signed up as a maybe for an event my buddy Paul was doing at Valley Fire. Well, I saw her profile and I said, oh, she definitely needs to come on my hike. So I sent her an email explaining why she should come out to the cave instead of going all the way out to Valley Fire. And it worked. And I also saw from her profile that she had recently moved from Buffalo. Well, I happen to be a big Buffalo Bills fan. So I made sure that I was wearing my Buffalo Bills hat when she showed up for the hike. And it totally worked. And we hit it off right away. And one of the cool things about Meetup is because we were out there for an event, we actually have pictures that were taken within minutes of when we first met each other. So you can see the magic as it happens. So see people join a meetup because maybe you will meet your future spouse. There Absolutely. you go. There you go, Mina. If you go join a meetup, <laughs> you know, maybe you can find a guy that, that you actually treat well. <laughs> it's true, though, about meetup. Like with our group, it's not a dating group. You know, we are an outdoors group. We hike. But the people who join the group, it's because they have that passion. They have that thing that they're really, really into. And when you start a relationship of any kind with this common interest that you both share, it's a great foundation to build a relationship going forward. Because there are definitely meetup groups whose purpose is, hey, guys, try to meet girls. Hey, girls, come try to meet guys. Yeah. And if you go in with kind of that concept, I think you just end up occasionally maybe something works out. But more often than not, probably just people under that pressure of trying to meet each other and then everything just falling apart. 
Whereas if you go in, like you're saying, with a common interest and then just let it naturally happen, you're probably more likely to meet somebody you're compatible with that way. Absolutely. And at a minimum, you have that thing that you guys like to do together. You know, if you meet somebody at a bar, I mean, I guess you would have drinking in common if you meet <laughs> at a bar. A great, and there's something to be to said for that. Time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but hiking is great. And we have had uh, a lot of marriages have uh, sprung from our meetup group over the years. So many that I actually got ordained as a minister so that I could perform outdoors weddings. And I have, uh, later this month, I think will be my seventh wedding. And this summer, I finally got the wedding that I've been wanting to perform. I'm going to be marrying a couple on Mount Charleston Peak. Sweet. So yeah. what did you have to do to get ordained as a minister? Oh, it's really easy. Uh, well, in a lot of places, the first couple I married was actually at Zion National Park, right in front of the huge cottonwood tree at the, at the uh, lodge. And you don't have to do anything to marry people in Utah. You just have to sign the paper, and that's it, and say, hey, you guys are married. Oh, really? You don't have to be a justice of a peace no, or anything not like at that? all. If I remember right, it was the same in Arizona. I think the reason that there is a barrier to entry in Nevada is because it's a business in Nevada. So with the business, you want to try to keep down the competition. So, yeah, I had to get ordained as a minister, which cost all of $20 through the Universal Life Monastery or whatever it is. Did they reimburse you that $20? I have since been reimbursed that $20. I've easily made my $20 back, yeah, over the years. Yeah, and by the way, podcast listener, if you're in Vegas and you want to do an outdoors destination or mountaintop wedding, I'm your guy. Look me up on Facebook. That's send right. me a Look message. Up Minister Alan Gigax. There you go. Yeah, that's been really rewarding. When my wife and I got married, uh, we got married. Actually, where we parked to do this hike is where we parked to do our wedding. It was right down at uh, Red Spring at Calico Basin. And my brother got ordained online, and he was our minister for that. And that's what gave me the idea. Like, man, that was really easy. I bet you I could do that. I know people who are getting married. So, yeah, it's been a nice, uh, nice side gig and super rewarding. I have a wedding coming up with a couple who uh, they've actually been married for 50 years, and they're renewing their vows, and the husband just beat cancer. And so they decided that they've been given a new lease on life, and they're going to start a whole new life together again with this fresh perspective of having overcome cancer. And I'm going to do their ceremony for them. Really looking forward to that one. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Where is that one going to be located? That is going to be at a timeshare resort on the South Strip. In, in case listeners on the podcast want to pop oh, up Oh, yeah, and in case you want to crash it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you started out 12 years old, coming out to Red Rock with your family. Yep. Found out that you like scrambling and hiking around. Where'd you go from there? It was tough to get out and enjoy the outdoors as much as I wanted to. I had a few buddies who liked hiking a little bit. I had my buddy Rex who was a uh, had a boat, and so we'd go out to Lake Mead, but it wasn't a lot of hiking. People didn't want to hike. And it really wasn't until I found Meetup that my hiking days very much took off. And that's something I hear from people who join all the time is we ask, why did you join the meetup group? And it's always, I love hiking, but I don't have friends who want to go and do that with me. And meetup is fantastic for that. You know, most of the friends, despite being in Vegas for close to 30 years now, almost all of my closest friends are friends who I've met through Vegas hikers, through our meetup group. So I started with the Vegas hikers and was able to get out on the trail essentially as often as I wanted. And that's one of the luxuries of being an organizer is if I ever feel like going hiking, I can post an event and guarantee there's going to be people who want to go with me. 
So I started hiking and lost a bunch of weight in the process. Now uh, my love for the outdoors is totally cemented. Definitely whenever I talk to people and they say, oh, I want to get into this and I want to get into that, the thing, the default thing I tell people now is go to meetup, search for the thing that you're interested in, join one of the meetups and yeah. just let it go from there. And there really are meetups for any interest that you might have. Yeah, anything. It's not just outdoor stuff. It could no. be there are meetups for like people who play chess. There are meetups yeah. for people who yeah. build miniatures. Yeah, yeah everything. Plane enthusiast, anything. Yeah. There are probably meetups for things that you would be shocked. There is a Dachshund meetup group here in Vegas that plays a role in the early days of our meetup group because our group was actually founded by a guy named Eric King, who I have since lost contact with. If you're out there listening, uh, get in touch with me. He started the group, but very early on I took over. When I took over, we had about 250 members. I had my sights set on making this a big group and growing it and making sure that we could get people to come out. You know, in the early days of the meetup group, one of the hardest things was to get women to come out on hikes because meetup was still fairly new back then. And who is going to go and meet, you know, three strange guys out in the Nevada desert? It's just not something that people would do. And so we had these ambitions that, man, wouldn't it be cool if we actually had like 50% women on, on some hikes? And, and sure, on camping events, there's no way women are ever going to come out for those. Well, fast forward 10 years later, and the group is probably two-thirds women, 60% uh, women, and same on all our events and on our camping trips and everything because it's a safe place. It's an established group, you know, and it makes people feel more secure and more comfortable. And they don't have to go out alone or just with some strange person. So, oh, back to the Dachshunds. So when I took over the group, you know, I really wanted to see it grow. And there were other groups that were bigger than ours. Uh, most groups were bigger than ours. And there were a few huge groups like this goth group that had a thousand people in it and a Wicca group that had 900 people in it or whatever it was. And I said, well, obviously, there's no way we'll ever catch those groups. But a few groups ahead of us on the hierarchy was this Dachshund meetup group, and they had like 330 members. So in the early days of meetup, the folks from headquarters came to town, met with organizers, and took us out to this fancy dinner. And the woman who ran the Dachshund meetup group was there. And I called her out, and I said, we're coming for you. We are going to be bigger than the Dachshund group. You mark my words. And she's like, oh, no way. You're never going to get that big. You know, groups just don't do that. I don't know how big the Dachshund group is now, but I don't think it's 12,000 members. So we did it. Take that, Dachshund group. I like the idea that you've got a group of a bunch of hikers and a group of Dachshund <laughs> enthusiasts, wiener yeah. dog enthusiasts, <laughs> yeah. and you're in a competition <laughs> For like membership numbers, like I imagine those groups don't compete that often outside no, of that space. Probably, well, and only in in fairness to her, only one of us had a truly competitive spirit. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's easy yeah. to win a race when you're the only one racing. It, it definitely is. And now, I mean, the group is so big that we have more members than we know what to do with. Now the big struggle is finding organizers, people who want to take the time and volunteer to take folks out. You know, we don't pay our organizers. It's all done on a volunteer basis. In fact, most places, especially here at Red Rock, if you charge for hiking, that's against the law. Right, so, because you're not an established guide. Exactly, you're not an established guide. And yeah, there are other big hiking groups here in Vegas, another really prominent meetup group that is doing that. They think they found a, like a loophole where they can charge for hikes, but still get around, they offer up a souvenir. And you pay for the souvenir, but the souvenir has very little value. 
And so it would be like hiring an Uber and the guy gives you a free hat and you pay 30 bucks for the hat instead of paying for your ride. You know, it's that sort of a sort of thing. So we don't do that. And so it's tough sometimes to attract organizers. Is that is that meetup group in competition with you for membership numbers? Well, that's a one sided competition where (laughs) because we do all this stuff for free. I'm taking food off of that guy's table because he's charging. You know, he's making a living. He is, that's how he earns his living as far as I know. And so he is definitely in competition with me and I, he does not like me. And he doesn't like the way I cooperate with the BLM and have these great relationships with the Rangers because the Rangers don't like him. Uh, this is the part of the show where I'm supposed to tell you, oh, we have a special guest. Yeah, and then right, I bring out right. that guy and you two have a fist fight. Oh, <laughs> uh, he is the fighting type. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's been a couple of uh, of run-ins with that guy. But anyway, enough about him. So getting back to the group, yeah, we started um, handing out business cards when we'd go out. Like, we'd go into REI, and people would be talking about hiking. Oh, well, you should join our meetup group. You know, and the group really took off. And now, yeah, we have more members than we know what to do with. And it's a great luxury to have a group this size because whatever crazy idea I get in my head of I want to do, you know, hike at midnight through a swamp and, and you know, whatever, it's something no one would want to do. With 12,000 members, somebody always wants to do it. And that's been really freeing to be able to go on these exploratory hikes or to destinations that don't seem like destinations and have people sign up and get on a waiting list to go out with me. It's a, it's a real luxury. Tell us about your desert companion writing and what you can find there. The guy who runs the uh, the other hiking meetup group had an axe to grind against me. And at one point, our group had gotten so big, we were doing really big hikes out at Red Rock. We were realizing that we're going to have to start limiting our group sizes because having 30 people out on a scrambling hike in Red Rock is just untenable. We started putting caps on our group sizes. And at the same time, the BLM was starting to take notice of what we were doing out here. And here's this new influx, this huge user group that's starting to use the resource. They were doing an environmental assessment and somehow people got it in their heads that this environmental assessment was going to set caps on the number of people who could hike in a group at Red Rock. I went through the entire environmental assessment. I read that thing cover to cover and there was nothing in there about limiting group sizes. Then I pick up an issue of Desert Companion magazine and the back page opinion piece was written by this other guy and he put out what he thought should be the limit at 21 for hikes at, at Red Rock. During the article, he took the opportunity to slam our hiking group and to say some things about our hiking group that were demonstrably untrue and really, really painted us and me in a negative light. So I wrote a letter to the editor and I explained the stuff that was in his opinion piece that was factually wrong and I linked to the exact sections of the environmental assessment that were relevant to what I was talking about. You know, I sourced everything and I got a letter back from their editor, Andrew Corrali, and he said, hey, I really like what you wrote here. We've never published a letter to the editor before. Yours is going to be our first. And so in the next issue of Desert Companion magazine, there was my letter to the editor that set the record straight about our group. And then he said, you know, we're interested in having like some sidebars about some local hikes. Would you be interested in writing that? As of that month, the other guy was no longer their freelance outdoors writer. I was their freelance outdoors writer. 
and I've been writing for them ever since. So in a way, I owe the asshole a debt of gratitude <laughs> for giving, opening that door for me. And it's really led to some phenomenal opportunities. Like I got to tour the uh, Nevada National Security site where they used to test nuclear weapons and see that it's actually one of the most pristine wildlife preserves in America because it's been closed to public access for the last 50, 60 years. And so there haven't been people out there four-wheeling and tearing up the, the wilds. And it's one of the places that's actually used as a control in environmental testing because environmentalists want to find out the impact that people have on the land. So they use that as the control. Like this is what the desert would do if nobody touched it. Let's compare that to what the desert does when a housing development goes in or, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for. And it was amazing to be able to go to this place and, and, you know, where nobody has ever gone. Their public information officer had been out there like 20 years. She had never done a tour like they did with me where it was just me, a biologist, an archaeologist, and the minder, and a native Paiute interpreter just going out into the wilds of the nuclear security site. It's been a really great ride, uh, writing for the magazine, and to be able to share the passion that I have for the outdoors with the uh, listeners of KMPR and the readers of Desert Companion. And just to clarify, for your meetup, it's for people of all levels, correct? Absolutely, yeah. We have uh, five guiding principles for our meetup group, and number one is all are welcome. And it's not just that you're allowed to come out and hike with us. It's also that we do our best to make sure you feel welcome. Did you say you joined 10 years ago? Yeah, about 10 years ago. Yeah, I joined in January of 2006. So in that time period, I'm sure when you joined the group, you said you've lost weight in the group. But what sorts of new activities have you done and... How have you progressed? Oh, my first hike with Vegas Hikers is a trail out here called La Madre Spring. And I think it's it might be a three-mile hike total with about 600 feet of elevation gain. It's a really easy hike. And the first time I hiked it with Vegas Hikers, I was about 290 pounds. I didn't think I was going to be able to make it all the way to the spring. In fact, I don't think I made it all the way to the spring. I think I waited and turned back. And the group... You know, they just had to go on without me if uh, if memory serves. And since then, you know, last summer I made my second trip to Charleston Peak, which is an 18 mile, 3,500 foot uh, trek, and no problem. You know, I was able to finish out strong, go to work the next day. The increased level of fitness that I've gotten from doing all this hiking has opened up new avenues, new places to explore. That before I thought, oh well, that. That destination is 13 miles away. There's no way I'm going to go there. But now that's totally doable. That's on the map. It's also given me the confidence to come out to places like the Calico Hills, where we are now, and just climb around on the nooks and crannies and see what I can find. And that's how we stumbled upon Slab Rift. It's really opened up this world. And then through the friends that I've met who also share this passion, just two weeks ago, a buddy of mine has a private pilot's license And he took me up flying, and we flew over Valley of Fire. We flew over Zion, Lake Powell, the Grand Canyon. It was amazing to be able to see this stuff from the air. And now I have this mind of, oh, where can I go hike? What's going to be cool? And when we're flying over Zion or over Valley of Fire, I saw this huge slot canyon that I'd never been in before. I'm posting an event to go find that. And again, that's the luxury of the meetup group where I can post it and people are going to sign right up and go with One of the coolest big ideas came from my buddy Rich, 
where he said, man, why don't you go somewhere really cool and just spread the cost around so you can do all the planning, but you don't have to pay for it. I said, all right. And so what we came up with, uh, mainly his idea, but I made it work, is called the Epic Trip. And for the Epic Trip, we charter a bus. We go to some national park. We've gone to Arches, Bryce, Great Basin. We've gone to the beach in Southern California. We went to... Uh, Emma Wood State Beach. There's two kegs on the bus. So instead of the boring drive, it's a rolling party. And we get there, we camp for two or three nights. Uh, we do all kinds of hikes and we can use the bus to, uh, to do one-way hikes. So the bus will drop us off at one spot. We'll do a one-way hike. It'll pick us up at the other end. And it's just a three-day party and it's so much fun. So this great basin trip that we have coming up it's actually timed to coincide with the Perseid meteor shower. So there's going to be these amazing dark skies once the moon goes down. There'll be a meteor shower, and we're camping for two nights. We're stopping at a park on the way up called Cathedral Gorge. Definitely check that out if you're in the area. And the whole trip, camping, kegs, commemorative mug, everything is 130 bucks. If you went on your own, you'd pay more than that in gas. To talk about the meteor shower for a second, because I've noticed that people who've never seen a meteor shower... Oh, they think it's going to be the spectacular... Uh, well, they think either that uh, or they think like, oh, well, who cares? Right. A few years back, I was in Zion with a bunch of friends and I had told everybody like, oh, the Persids are this weekend. They're peaking mm -hmm. this weekend. We'll be able to see them. And I could tell no one cared. <laughs> yeah, you were on that trip, Mina, right? Yeah. So so, yeah. so you'll, you can vouch for the story i'm about to tell all right so that night we're all camping on some blm land outside of zion and i was like oh they'll probably start being able to see the meteor shower soon and everybody's like whatever mm. and then as soon as somebody saw one oh, because what yeah. people think is it's just gonna look like a falling star and mm -hmm. some of them do but yeah. then some of them are really bright and yeah, impressive and colored streaks yeah and, some yeah. of them look like light spears Mm -hmm. cutting across the sky as soon as somebody in the group saw it suddenly everybody became interested and then everybody started seeing them and then what no one cared about within a short period of time turned into everyone laying on the ground yes. staring up and saying, oh there's one oh there's one oh there's one absolutely for hours yep. for probably like two hours or so yeah a previous great basin trip we just lucked into the perseid meteor shower and that was exactly the same thing you know i told people about it oh this might be interesting and here it is midnight, and we're all just laying in the road, looking up at the at the sky, and, oh, there's one over there. And, yeah, it was so much fun. And the, the cool thing is when you watch these meteor showers, if you, if you get them on a bad night, if there's a full moon or if there's too much light from the city, it's hard to see them, and then it won't be impressive. But if you get somewhere where it's fairly dark mm -hmm. and you catch them on a good night and they're really impressive, it makes you realize for a second, thousands of years ago, man was seeing this with no obstruction. Mm has no idea what it is right yeah i've had to be terrified. like how yeah how it's so easy to imagine like okay now i understand why people would believe there are these huge creatures in the sky mm -hmm. that were controlling the world underneath them because you watch these meteor showers and you could easily imagine oh these are giant beings fighting each other oh, yeah. in the skies above us one of my earliest memories from my grandfather's farm out in the boonies of arizona was a fireball and I had never seen anything like that. I grew up in San Diego, and it scared the piss out of me. It scared me so bad. I had no idea what it was. I, And, yeah, it was terrifying. So, yeah, to not know what that is. And that was the same with comets, you know, when people would see a comet or anything different in the sky that was unexpected. You know, at night, they didn't have TV to watch or entertaining podcasts to listen to. 
So they would just look up at the stars and the shapes of the stars would, you know, pareidolia would cause them to see things in the shapes of the stars or in the constellations. And then they tell stories based around those. And so it's a good way to learn the constellations, but it also makes it really noticeable when something different is going on. I have a sad story about meteor showers also. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to have a subscription to Odyssey magazine. Are you familiar with this magazine? I'm not. It's like a magazine, a science, space, astronomy-based magazine okay. for kids. Nerd alert! Yeah. I've always been into science and space. Why not? Uh, so there was one of the issues mentioned meteor showers. And I was like, oh, I want to see a meteor shower. I find out the date, the time, and all this. And it's like 3 in the morning. Mm. And I'm, I don't know, maybe 8, 9 years old. So I get up. I set my alarm for like 3 in the morning. I take a lawn chair out, go out into the backyard, and just hang out there for like an hour and I never see anything. <laughs> and it turned out that I didn't realize at the time that they were giving the time for a different time zone. Oh, right. Like mean Greenwich Mean Time or something. Probably, yeah. yeah. And so it was it was completely... <laughs> or it was not viewable in my area. I don't know what it turned out to be. But that was my sad story of a meteor shower. Uh, Many yeah. years later, I would see the persons and it would be a much better event. Yeah, they're, they're good if you can get... Uh, if you can time it around the peak, if it happens to be dark where you are and cloudless, that's one of the very lucky things we have here in southern Nevada. When people move into town, I'll get emails from them when we're getting ready to do an event. And they'll be like, well, what if it rains? What do you guys do if it's going to rain? Celebrate? I don't know. It never <laughs> happens. Yeah, it's enough that it's a novelty. We actually look forward to going out in the rain and seeing... You know, seeing the desert in a different light. Give me a rundown of the types of events that you have done, are doing, or would like to do with the meetup now. Sure, sure. It's mainly hiking and scrambling. We have an organizer right now, Rick, who, God, he must organize 15 events a week. And it's almost all in the Calico Hills doing various scrambling routes where he's found these cool little nooks and crannies all over the place. And he just makes all these different routes out of them. So that's a big chunk of our calendar right now. But then there are beginner level hikes. There's a, I do cleanup hikes at the last Sunday of every month where we'll pick a popular trail and we'll go at a nice slow pace and bring garbage bags with us and just pick up trash along the way. And those are some of the easiest hikes that we do. Uh, we have occasional moonlight hikes. We'll hike in the evening. There are after-work hikes. There are some more ambitious hikes, especially once we get into summer where we start doing uh, peak hikes in uh, Mount Charleston. And then there are exploratory hikes out at Lake Mead. There are long trail slogs at Lake Mead. There are scrambles at Lake Mead. I mean, the list goes on and on. One of the most ambitious events we ever put on, and man, it did not work out, was a flotilla where we hiked in to the Colorado River just below the dam, and the idea was to bring all these inflatables and then blow them up and float down to Willow Beach, which would be like, uh, I think from where we hiked in, it would be like eight miles So you're, you're talking about the Black Canyon area? Yeah, yeah, Black Hoover Canyon, Dam, exactly, yeah. right below Hoover Dam. Yeah, so we would tube down Black Canyon, and at that time of year, on the weekends, it's closed to motorized boats. And so it was safe, it was no problem, and we had a huge group, we must have had 80 people come out, and we had three waves. We had the first wave, where we called them the Marines, where they came in the day before by boat, and we rented a pontoon boat, because uh, the day before you could still have boats, and we brought people's heavy stuff up to the beach. 
and some people camped overnight. And then the next day we had, starting early in the morning, we had the Navy where people use the outfitter that'll put you in right below the dam and they come down in their canoes and kayaks. And then everybody met the army, which was marching in, carrying their, their inflatables and their boats and whatever overland to Arizona Hot Springs. And we all met up there and then started floating down the river. And of course there was tons of beer and it was a great time for like the first four hours. But the river below the dam moves really, really slowly, like one mile an hour, two miles an hour. And the problem was that day we had not a strong headwind, but a headwind that was enough where people just weren't moving on the river. And people were getting drunker and drunker. People didn't bring paddles and they were just stuck on the river. Some people's inflatables started deflating and eventually the rangers had to come out on their boats and start rescuing people. Oh, really? Yeah, and I don't know how many people the rangers wound up rescuing in total because luckily I had used the outfitter and I had to paddle down and, uh, and catch my ride back with the outfitter. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a hell of a day. We learned a lot of lessons that day. I've canoed through that area, I think, three times now, mm -hmm. and they've all been very different experiences. The first time, the water was flat. There was very little wind. It was very easy to canoe through it. Mm-hmm very leisurely right the second time we were going back and some new people were coming and we're like oh it's so easy oh you don't have to worry about this you don't have to worry about that right uh it's super flat water and then that time we were getting hit with 40 mile per hour oh my headwinds God. and we were getting white caps multiple people capsized oh wow uh, yeah, it was, it was, that time was a lot rougher. And then the third time we did it, we got the opposite. We got tailwinds. Ah. So we were able to hold up a tarp. Nice. And, and do a sail. sail. <laughs> a good portion of the <laughs> That's way. That's great. Yeah. The first time I ever did Black Canyon was with a buddy Trevor. And we hiked into Gold Strike Hot Springs, which is just below the dam. And we blew up our own inflatables. We must have been a 25, something like that. Young and dumb. On the hike in, it was in the dead of summer. And I got heat exhaustion on the hike in because I was wearing my life jacket. I don't know what I was thinking, just hiking in under the brutal sun, wearing my life jacket. Of course, I couldn't sweat. I was holding in all this heat. I wound up getting heat exhaustion. But once Trevor pointed out, well, dude, why are you wearing your life jacket? I was able to take it off and, and get wet. And uh, we got down to the river and things were going okay. We're cruising along. And at that time, I thought the river flowed a lot faster. So we had allotted like five hours to do this 13-mile river trip. And I saw places that said like Ringbolt Rapids. And so I got this really high-powered ski tube that had a big vinyl cover over it or a Cordura cover or whatever. And my buddy got this nine dollar two-man inflatable boat from walmart once we got out there on the water it was so obvious that he had made the better choice because that river water is so cold it's like 50 degrees all year long and i could not get out of the water when i was sitting in the tube my ass was in the water and if i tried to get my ass out of the water my feet were in the water and as we're paddling downstream we each had one paddle the clouds started building and it really looked like thunderstorms. And my buddy's like, dude, do we have to worry about flash floods in here? I said, no way. We're right below the biggest flood control device this side of the Mississippi. There's no way we have flash floods. Well, it turns out there are flash floods You in forgot there. about all the canyons that empty I into it. I did indeed. I did indeed. And the town of Nelson, just south of there, had been wiped out by flash floods. 
a while back. So the thunderclouds let loose and we get poured on and I start shivering and shaking. And on the same day that I had heat exhaustion, I got a mild case of hypothermia on the same day. And so we really start paddling in earnest, trying to get down this river. And we have no idea how much further we have to go. And then my paddle breaks. And the, the paddle part of the paddle, I just watched it sink to the bottom of the river. And so now I have no paddle. My buddy has the only paddle. I'm cold. We have been out on this river for hours. And finally, I just had to hold on to his boat, and he just paddled constantly. And I think, all told, we were out on the river like 13 hours. It was a hell of a day. And then we still had to go back and pick up our car, and, and oh, my God. I have so many adventures like that that the first time I try to do it, it just is this huge misadventure. Did you finish in the dark? Yeah. Yeah, we finished in the dark, or in at dusk. But you were able to keep yourself warm enough that you didn't truly get No, no. It was just the beginnings of hypothermia. Just like with the heat exhaustion, it wasn't heat stroke. Right. You know, so I did manage to stay alive. But the worst time like that was the first time I tried to go backpacking. I had been hiking enough, and I would started to go camping. And so I thought, all right, I think I'm ready to go backpacking. And this was in the early days of cell phones where it was kind of a novelty to me and I wasn't used to my cell phone ringing all the time. And at that time I ran a fantasy football league where I did everything by hand. And so if there were trades or for people to set their lineups, everybody would call me to do this. I just had enough of my phone ringing all the time. I said, I'm checking out for a couple of days. And I decided to hike the West Rim at Zion. Now I had gone car camping before and I had gone hiking before, but I had never put the two together to go backpacking. So I had this enormous military backpack called an Alice pack that's from like the Vietnam era. I just loaded it up with stuff. Anything I thought I would need, I put in that pack. And I was going to be out there. I was supposed to be out there for five days. And so I packed, you know, books. I packed notebooks to write in. I packed a bottle of tequila. Right, you, you did. You made that mistake where you're like, oh, I might need this, so I should bring it. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll need this. Right. Oh, maybe I'll use this. Yeah, and it's that thing. and It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. The tequila that I brought, I actually brought it in the bottle of tequila. I didn't put right. it in a platypus bag or anything like that. Didn't even know what those were at the time. But the quintessential example of how I overpacked is I brought in various packs and pouches uh, because I thought, oh, what if I'm on a day hike and I just have my day pack, so I put one in there. I brought a couple books of matches, a couple of Bic lighters, some waterproof matches, a magnesium fire starter, <laughs> something else too. Oh, and like a torch lighter. And it's not even legal to have fires out there. The only thing I had that I could light on fire was a cigar. But I brought all that stuff because I thought, oh, my God, what if I am away from my pack and I wind up having to make a fire to survive the night? I need to bring that. It was a total disaster. And then once I had my pack all filled up, then I brought my buddy Rex, the boater, who was a Marine. And he said, oh, you can get way more stuff in there. Let me show you how to really <laughs> stuff it down and to really get. And like my clothes, I brought like what you would bring to go on a trip. Did you have of a three-piece suit with you? I did not have a suit at that time, but I brought... But you did have a tuxedo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In case any weddings popped up. But I had like four pairs of pants and three pairs of shorts and five shirts and a jacket, you know, all this stuff. So that morning, I'm at Zion. My pack weighed, I think it weighed total about 80 pounds. 
And then I also had, even my pockets were full on my cargo shorts. 80 pounds? Is that what you said? Yeah. Jesus, that is a lot. Now, at the time, I was still a lot fatter. And the hike, I was doing the West Rim Trail at Zion, which, to my understanding, was mostly downhill. So I'm like, all right, well, that's fine. I'm a strapping guy. I can handle going downhill. But I should have known when the outfitter came to pick me up to take me to the trailhead. And he went to lift my pack. Yeah, I'm sure he's like this yeah. moron. Yeah, what and he, he said, uh, "Dude, I'm not lifting that into the car." <laughs> and this is a guy who lifts packs all day long. So yeah, the fact that he wouldn't even pick it up should have been an indicator. But that's fine. I got out there. I shouldered my pack, and I start hiking. My first campsite was only like two miles in, maybe two and a half, and I hit the first downhill, and I realized that the boots that I'm wearing are just a little bit too big. And so as I'm going down the hill, my feet, which are my brakes, are rubbing inside the boot. And every step I take, it's just rubbing inside the boot. Those downhills can kill your knees, too. Well, Especially with my, 80 pounds on yeah, your back. Luckily, yeah, I was pretty strapping back then, so my knees weren't really the problem, but my feet were. And by the time I got to the first campsite and started to set up, I took my boots off and I had this huge blister on the side of my foot that had already broken. And I mean, like a core, uh, on the side of my big toe, it was like nickel sized. And it had already broken. I had blisters on the bottom of my feet. I said, this is not going well. So I set up camp and I went to filter water and the water wasn't what I was expecting. It was like a swamp that had all these bees all over it. And I dropped in my water filter and a huge plume of silt popped up. You know, when I put the water filter in and so I had to wait for that. And meanwhile, these bees are swarming. So finally I get that done. I get back to the camp. I'm all set up and I just sit there and I have nothing to do. I'm totally bored. Which was okay. So you had like 50 books with you. I did. I brought... You had the Encyclopedia Britannica with you. Exactly, yeah, hardcover books. And yeah, I brought two books. I brought a notepad, like a spiral notepad with like five sections in it instead of just a little notepad. You bring a trapper keeper? (laughs) Right, right, With a unicorn on the... Yeah, Yeah, so, so I'm sitting there and I say, well, I guess I'll have a cigar and wait for the sun to set. So I have my cigar, and the sun starts to set, and the sky goes from blue to dark blue to indigo to black. And so, all right, well, I guess I'm getting in the tent for the night. And I get in the tent, and my mind just starts racing. And every little sound that I hear outside sets me into a panic. So I had this book, a Buddhism book by Thich Nhat Hanh about fear. And I start reading that, and I think, oh, this will settle me down. And it didn't (laughs) at all. And I'm trying to use these techniques and meditate and everything I hear. And I know, like, there's not bears. You know, maybe there's a mountain lion, like one mountain lion in 10 square miles. So I don't really have to worry about that. But I hear little sounds next to the tent. And I think, oh, my God, is that a raccoon? Probably all those little kangaroo rats out there. Right. And I think, oh, my God, what if there's a raccoon in that out there? And I know in my head, like, I can probably kick a raccoon's ass. A raccoon's not going to take me down. Some raccoons are are big and tough. We're not talking badgers here. (laughs) And I just freaked out. And I said, well, this is definitely not what I signed up for. Tomorrow morning, as soon as light breaks, I'm packing up and I'm getting out of here. I'm just going to hike the rest of the way out. So the next morning, I set up my pack. I have breakfast. And uh, at the time, I didn't know about the wonders of the jet boil. So I had MREs. And, you know, everything's heavy, everything's dense. So I shoulder my pack again, and I get back on the trail. And I have, like, 
13 miles to go. And I, I wasn't in shape at the time. I was heavy. So I start hiking and this pack doesn't have a chest strap. And so it's just pulling my arms back with this 80 pounds of force the whole time I'm hiking. So I'm using my trekking poles to try to keep my hands in front of me as I'm hiking along and just getting this terrible pain in my shoulders, this terrible pain in my feet. And I get to the next big downhill section to a place called Potato Hollow and I'm getting tired and I've been flying through. Oh, and by the way, all this stuff that I brought didn't bring enough water. I had like three liters. Well, that's always how it is, right? You bring oh, yeah. the unimportant things and forget the Absolutely. important ones. I still have plenty of tequila left, <laughs> but I only had like three liters of water and it was hot and I'm working really, really hard and I flew through that water. And so I'm hiking down into Potato Hollow and the whole time my feet are just grinding inside my boots and getting worse and worse. And I finally get to the bottom and I realize, oh my God, I'm going to have to climb back out the other side of Potato Hollow. And so I start hiking up and I get completely exhausted. I get so tired that I'm going like 10 feet at a time and having to stop and rest on my trekking poles to catch my breath. And then another 10 feet and stop and rest on my trekking poles. And by the time I finally got up out of Potato Hollow to the West Rim, I was completely out of water. I was totally exhausted. I had no idea how much further it was going to be to get to West Rim Spring, which was my next water source. I was hiking. It's to this day, it's the most beautiful place I've ever hiked. I've been back there a few times. And the hike goes right along this cliff edge in a lot of places. And I started to get nervous. I have this big pack. And I knew enough to know that with dehydration, the first thing that starts to go is your decision making, your judgment. And so I said, all right, well, I've seen, I've seen cowboy movies. Why don't I take one of these beaver tail cactus? And it doesn't have spines on it, so I'll just cut it open and, and eat the uh, pulp inside and get my liquid from that. Well, beaver tail cactus does still have tiny little hair-like spines, which I found out when they were all in my mouth and all over my hands. And, of course, the pulp inside is just sticky goop that has no moisture value whatsoever. It's not like the when the coyote cuts open the, uh, the barrel cactus and there's like a jug of water inside. And so that was a disaster. At that point, I honestly didn't know if I was going to make it to the next spring. And so I made the decision to ditch my pack and just take my day pack. Oh, and then, of course, the water bottles that I brought, like, you know, disposable water bottles. After I drank them the first time, I crushed them down. And so I had to like try to make those big again and blow them back up. So I took all the water vessels that I had, put them in my day pack, and I left a note that said, headed for West Rim Spring, out of water, send help. And I put it up on this big tree stump right next to the trail, and I took off for the spring. And once that pack was off, I felt like I was hiking on the moon. And I was just bounding down the trail. Yeah, sometimes you almost feel like you're levitating. Yeah, you absolutely. I couldn't believe how easy it was to hike at that point. And so I'm bounding down the trail. But to get to West Rim Spring, you have to come down off the rim. And so I'm going down and down and down and mile after mile. And every mile that I go, my pack is that much further behind me and uphill. And at that point, I had made the decision that I'm just going to ditch it and hike all the way out. Well, I finally get to West Rim Spring. And of all things, at the spring, there's a vulture waiting for me at the spring. And I'm like, not so fast, vulture. You're not going to get me this time. And I get to the spring and I start pumping my water filter just straight into my mouth. 
and I drink as much as I possibly can, and then I fill up my bottles, and I drink those down, and I fill them up again, and I have a little lunch, and now it's getting late in the day, and I have a decision to make. Am I going to hike out the rest of the way? Am I, and my feet, of course, are hamburger at this point. Am I going to hike out the rest of the way, get medical attention, ditch my pack? Or am I going to hike back to my pack, set up for the night and see how it goes? Or I brought an emergency blanket with me. Maybe I'll just lay down here for the night and see how I feel in the morning. So eventually I decided I'm going to go back to my stuff and try to make a go of it. So I hike all the way back up and luckily it's much easier this time get back up to my camp, my pack, and there's a campsite right near where I had dropped my stuff. So I set up camp there for the night. I get into the tent, and I take my shoes off, and my socks are just red. You know, they're all soaked with blood. And I take the socks off, and my feet look so bad. And there's just huge blisters that had broken, exposed under layers, and, and it, it's really, really awful. And I know, okay, I need medical attention. I leave my feet uncovered for the night, hoping that maybe it'll dry out, and I go to bed. And I wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of jets flying over my tent. Like, that's weird. It's Zion. It's just... (laughs) These jets flying over the tent. And then there's this huge flash. And that's when I realize, oh my God, it's a thunderstorm. And I was so thankful that I decided to go back to my stuff and not try to sleep in an emergency blanket. I would have been in big trouble. That night, I slept like a champ. You know, I didn't have any fear. I was so exhausted, I'm sure. But I slept through the thunderstorm. My tent held up. And the next morning, I get up and I unzip my tent to take a leak. And there's like a family of deer right outside the tent just browsing in the grass. And it was such an awesome and peaceful experience. And it... It made me realize why people do that, why people backpack, why people go on these journeys. One look down at my feet brought me back to reality. I said, all right, I have to hike out today. You know, whatever else happens, I have to get out of here today. So I pack everything back up, I shoulder my bag, and I start heading out. And I get back down to West Rim Trail, and this time I play it smart, I I drink as much as I possibly can, I do it camel style, and then I fill up all my water. And I start heading down from West Rim. And the trail there is cut, it's blasted into the cliff face. And there's just like this sidewalk on the cliff face. And I'm exhausted already. And I have this huge pack swinging on my back and pulling on my shoulders. And I was so nervous going down that section of trail. Finally, I get to the bottom. And I'm tired enough now that even going downhill, you know, I'm only going maybe 100 yards. And then I have to stop and take a rest and and then keep on trucking. So I get down to the bottom of the bat of that and I'm hiking on this nice dirt. It's like a real trail. Things are going okay. I think, all right, you know, I'm going to be okay. And I finally get my first glimpse of inner Zion Canyon. I think, oh my God, there it is. It's, I'm really, I'm really going to make it. And then I have to make the climb back up again to a place called Scout Lookout, which is just above Angel's Landing. And I know once I make it to Scout, then I'm going to be in Inner Zion Canyon. I'm going to be where tourists are, and I'm going to be where there's health. Because then you just hike down the Angels Landing Trail and take the bus, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but even that is all this huge more. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah go to Walter's Wiggles and all that down, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I start going up, and again, you know, I'm completely wiped out. I'm going 10 feet at a time, and every step is just agony on my feet. And I'm hiking up and hiking up, and these two cute girls I see coming down the other way. 
And I said, oh, look, there's people. Oh, right on. And so I stop, uh, you know, take the opportunity to catch my breath, and I talk to them for a little bit. And they say they're going the other way. They're doing the hike that I just did, but in reverse, where it's all uphill. And at that time, I'm like, that is pure insanity. Who could possibly hike up all of that with a backpack on? Now I could do it. But they said to me, you know, we brought our camp stove. We're going to cook up there. We're going to use the water from the spring. But we forgot to bring any kind of matches or something. Do you have something we could borrow? <laughs> Boy, do I ever have something you could borrow. Yes, I definitely do. And by the way, would you like a bottle of tequila? Would you like some Would you like the Encyclopedia Britannica? Right, right, exactly. And so they went on their way. And I asked them, well, how much further is it until I get up to Scout Lookout? Because I know once I'm there, I'm home free. And they're like, oh, it's just another 10 minutes up, up the hill. You know, even if you're going slow, it's just right up there. And it must have taken me an hour and a half <laughs> to get up to that point because I had to stop so much. So I finally get up there and I start coming down the other side. Now I'm on the Angels Landing side and I start seeing people. And oh, thank God. But now I'm so beat. I'm in so much pain. That even going downhill, again, I'm only going 10, 20 feet. And I have to stop and catch my breath. But I know now, and I only have like one liter of water left. But I know even if I run out of water, whatever happens, I'm out of here today. I'm golden. I'm stopped just below Angel's Landing right before Walter's Wiggles. And I'm leaning with my pack up against the rock so that it can support the weight of the pack. And I'm just like hunched there, exhausted. And this nice older couple comes up the trail and they see me and they start making conversation. And I tell them a little bit of what I've been through and where I came from. And the guy says, they're like in their 60s, they're from Colorado. And the guy says, oh yeah, I used to be an adventure racer. And so I definitely know some of the pain you're feeling. I've had to deal with some of that stuff, but you know, I wouldn't be dumb enough to have a huge pack <laughs> like that. And so we make our pleasantries and they go on their way and I start to hike back down the hill. And the guy says, stop. So I gladly stop. And he says, let me carry your pack for you. I said, man, I can't let you do that. You know, and you're going to Angel's Landing, you know, have your fun and go see Angel's Landing. And maybe if you see me on the way, on your way down, when I'm like 30 feet downhill from here, then, you know, we'll talk about it. So they agree. And then I start walking downhill again. And this time the wife says, stop. So I stop. And she says, look, we know there's, there's ledges ahead of you. We know what's ahead of you. We can't in good conscience let you go down in the condition that you're in carrying that pack. So I reluctantly agree. I take my pack off and I start floating up in the air. I wear the guy's pack and he goes to put Alice on and he can't even hardly lift it up. And he says, how the hell did you hike anywhere with this thing on your back, let alone, you know, the 15 miles that you've already come. So his wife and I help put Alice on him and he shoulders her and we hike all the way down. He hiked all the way down, no stopping. I was able to hike down from there with no stopping. We get all the way down to the cars. And he says, uh, you know, my wife and I have a room here at the lodge. Why don't you come to the lodge? You can take your shoes off. You get a shower and we'll take a look at your feet and see, you know, how bad it is. So basically you met the nicest people. Oh, America. my God. They are saviors. And you, too, a kindly couple from Colorado. If you're listening, please get in touch with me. And the guy was an architect. I don't know. Anyway, um. So I turn him down. I say, look, my concern is that once I take these boots off, nothing is going to go back on my feet. And I still need to drive home back to Vegas. And so we go our separate ways and I'm driving home. And now we're back into cell phone country and I call my mom. And I say, mom, I've had this really 
bad thing happened to my feet. Do you think I should come home or should I go straight to the doctor's office? She says, well, why don't you come home? You know, we'll take the bandages. Oh my God, I forgot to tell you one of the most important parts. The second morning when I got up and decided that I'm gonna hike out, I said, I have to do something to protect my feet. And so I covered my feet in duct tape. <laughs> And I just put the sticky side of the duct tape against my foot, wrapped it around, and both my feet had duct tape on them. It actually helped quite a bit. Then it helped and did stop my feet from getting damaged much worse. But by the time I get home, I get to my mom's house, I get into the tub, and now we have to start taking the duct tape off. And of course, my feet are all hamburger and, and there's all this loose skin. And as the duct tape comes off, all the skin's coming off with it and just leaving raw flesh underneath. And my mom says, well, I'm not, I don't have the stomach for this. I can't take this tape off. You have to wait for your dad to get home. So I said, all right, that's fine. So I hang out, wait for my dad to get home. He gets home and he starts taking it off and he definitely has the stomach for it, but it's clear that it's doing a lot of damage getting this stuff off my feet. And they say, look, this is over our heads. We have to go to the quick care and get the doctor there to take it off. So we get to the quick care, they bring a wheelchair out for me. And I forget, how old did you say you were during this time? Uh, maybe 28, okay. somewhere around there. Yeah, 30, something like that. So, uh, so we get to the quick care, I go in, I go through triage, and the doctor comes in and takes a look at it, and he starts to kind of peel away, and he does get the duct tape off, but he says, uh, this is way worse than he doesn't believe that I did this hiking. He thinks that I was like trying to walk on hot coals or something. And that's how I have these burns. So I have second degree burns over both of my feet, over like 40% of my feet, second degree burns. And he said, we can't handle this here. You have to go to the burn unit at UMC. <laughs> Jesus. And so I had after that, I had three, three visits to the burn unit at UMC before I was finally able to put a shoe on again like a week or two later. I learned a lot about myself on that trip. I learned a lot about hiking on that trip. I have since been back. I've hiked that uh, three more times since then, always as a day trip. Alice has never been back <laughs> to the West Rim. The, my takeaway for myself was I had always been a pussy growing up. I'd always been soft. Uh, I was coddled as a kid. My, my mom did everything for me. When I moved out on my own, I literally didn't know how to do laundry. As a kid, when I would have been in discomfort, I would have just sat down and said, well, that's it. I can't go any further. You know, this trip is over and just quit. But when I was out there by myself, it wasn't an option. If I quit, you know, eventually I die of exposure or dehydration or whatever, or, you know, I couldn't do it. I just had to push through. I had to keep on keeping on and just put my head down. And it doesn't matter if it hurts. You got to just put your head down. You got to push through that trip changed my life. It changed my work ethic. It changed who I was as a person. And that's something that I still get out of hiking to this day when I go on a slog that, you know, if you're tired, whatever, man, just put your head down and keep those feet moving. I like a number of things about this story. I like number one that you've been back. What I think a lot of people might do for their first backpacking trip is they'll also make mistakes. Like my first backpacking trip, I did the opposite of you. I didn't bring enough stuff. I didn't have a jacket. I was freezing cold all night. Oh yeah. I, uh, I didn't know about compression sacks and all kinds of things. Didn't you just sleep on the side of the trail at 
No, you're items. thinking you're thinking of my friend Alden. Oh yeah, yeah on his right, episode right. he did that. Although I have had to do that before elsewhere. <laughs> a lot of people would have that experience and then they would think, "Oh, I just hate this." Right, it's just not for me. I don't do this now. Yeah. Like I tried it, I hated it, it's over. But what you did instead was, "Oh, I did this wrong." Right. How can I improve this? But also what I really like is what you said here at the end where you pointed out that despite all the terrible shit that happened, the takeaway was more important than than the struggle. Like the struggle yeah. actually, like you said, it changed your life. Mm-hmm. And now you look at things differently and now you've even changed probably the way you approach a lot of things in your life Absolutely. because you went through this shitty experience. Yeah. In a weird way, it prepared me for married life because... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> because what You're I not gonna be married much longer after well, that statement. Well, let's get to the end here. Because uh, oh, my... sorry, we're out of we're out of card. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, who I met out hiking, was really active. She uh, back in Buffalo, she was a competitive water skier. She'd been a wakeboard instructor, an outdoors instructor, and we met hiking. Not long. Uh, after we got married, she became disabled with chronic illness. Uh, she has a condition called autonomic neuropathy, where her autonomic nervous system that controls her body's automatic functions is shutting down. And it turns out that she's had it her whole life. It started out with a gastrointestinal issue. She has hypothyroid, so she has a hard time controlling her body temperature which was a big problem living in Buffalo. And uh, all these other things that we're having to deal with that became acute shortly after we got married. And once she got really bad, her her most oppressive condition is called gastroparesis, which is a paralyzed stomach, where food goes into her stomach and then it just sits there and it doesn't empty out. And so it just, it rots, it causes all this cramping. It was very hard for her to take in nutrition. And there was quite a while while we were trying to get a diagnosis and trying to get this stuff figured out that she was literally bedridden for days at a time. And I would have to carry her into the bathroom. She hasn't worked now in a couple of years. There's a lot of stuff that she just can't do at home. And so now, you know, I'm our sole source of income. And then when I get home from working overtime, you know, I'm cleaning the toilets. I'm doing the floors. I'm taking the dogs for a walk. And, you know, as we manage her symptoms better, she's able to do more of that. But if it weren't for those type of experiences where... I knew even if I'm tired, you know, just put your head down and keep chugging along. There's no way I would have been prepared for the kind of difficulty that we've run into with her being sick. And it really, it really prepared me for what we've been going through. So I'm very thankful to hiking and to backpacking and to these life experiences for that to help try to make me a better husband. So I feel like these last two stories... I feel like we can't tell anything that's going to top that. (laughs) All right. What we usually do now is go ahead and wrap it up to let people know what they they need to know if they wanted to join your meetup. Clearly, if they're not in the Vegas area, just go to meetup. Look for a meetup in your area. But if somebody is in this area and they're interested in joining yours, what do they need to know? Go to meetup.com and just search for hiking. And it'll generally bring you to our group because we are the biggest and one of the most active in the world. But our site in particular is meetup.com slash Vegas hikers. And it's one word, Vegas hikers. So you can find us that way. Uh, you can also find what I'm up to on Facebook. I have a completely public Facebook profile. And that's just my name, Alan Gigax, G-E-G-A-X, A-L-A-N-G-E-G-A-X. 
And so if you want to get in touch with me, possibly for an outdoors wedding, if you're coming to Vegas, uh, you can message me through there. That's Oh, and then you can find my writing at Desert Companion Magazine, which is knpr.org. Uh, they have links to Desert Companion there. And I think Desert Companion has a website too, but it's easiest to just find it at knpr.org. So I think we'll wrap it up there. If you want to get outside and you haven't been, go join a meetup. If you're in Vegas, join this meetup. Don't carry 80-pound packs. Good advice right that's there. The, that's, that's good the advice. final advice for the day. Well, thanks for taking us up here. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. It's been fun. And uh, I guess we'll go hike down now. All right. Let's do it. All right. Cool. A number of things have occurred in the five months since Alan and I spoke, and here to give you those updates himself is Mr. Alan Gigax. Hey Jason, it's me, Alan Gigax, from the podcast. I have a few updates since we last spoke. First, my wedding business now has a name, Nevada Scenic Weddings. I set up a Facebook page with a few photos from past ceremonies, and you can find it at facebook.com slash Nevada Scenic Weddings. It's a good place to go if you need a top-notch officiant for outdoors, mountaintop, or destination wedding. Also, this year's epic trips have come and gone, and they were a big success, as usual. Now it's on to epic trip 10, Lake Powell. We're going to be camping by the shore, renting a fleet of boats, and having a great time for four days in late August of 2017. And that's all well and good, but I have big news, and it's that I was a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It hasn't aired yet, so I can't tell you how I did is a bummer because one of the questions was really relevant to this podcast. And anyway, when I get an air date, I'll be sure to pass it along so you can all watch my game show experience. I think that's all for now. So thanks again, Jason, for making me a part of your show. It was truly a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Take care. If you have never had a reason to watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, now you have a perfectly good excuse. He'll let me know when that episode airs, and I will let all of you know. But in the meantime, let's do that thing we all love to do now and run, run, run to the internet and go to gogetoutside.com slash podcast, episode 37, Alan Gigax. And there you will find numerous photos and numerous links. Links to the Vegas Hiker Meetup, Alan's Facebook page, his wedding officiating business, a link to Desert Companion Magazine, a link to a story he wrote for Desert Companion Magazine about that first backpacking trip that he told us about here on the show, and a link to the West Rim Trail itself, which is the trail he hiked. And if you have had a backpacking experience even worse than the one he relayed, send us an email here at the show, because I want to hear all about it. That's go at butcherbirdstudios.com or... Call us up at 818-925-0106. It's a Google voicemail account. You only have three minutes. So if you need to recount a horrific story and you want to do it over phone, you may do that. But you may need to call multiple times if your story is longer than three minutes. And then do me a favor, please. Head to Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you download this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. It is a great way to make sure this show continues by making sure more people know about it. And just a reminder to come back next month and find out where you can follow Erica and I on the road. 
And a reminder that the next four episodes will be uploaded from the road. So my apologies if any hiccups are to occur next time on the show. Did you enjoy our solo backpacking roundtable? Well, then you'll be happy to know we've got another roundtable on the way. That's right. October 1st, come back for episode 38 with Skydive Monroe, a skydiving company in Monroe, Georgia. So if you think this show is too West Coast centric, as I know it can be, well, do not worry. We'll be heading to the Southeast for the next episode where you should get everything you want and need to know about skydiving discussed. So come back October 1st for Skydive Monroe. See you then.